all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Good morning, and thanks for joining us. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and nurse practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today I have Leanne Murray, who's also a nurse practitioner uh, from Hancock Women's Center in Bay St. Louis, joining me today. She is joining us uh, by phone, and we're so happy that she's able to do that because we're going to be talking about something that I know is near and dear to her heart um, and probably something you would expect during the month of October. We're going to be talking about breast cancer, but in particular, we're going to be talking about um, breast cancer risk, uh, how maybe to modify that risk if possible, and to make sure that you're getting the correct screenings at the uh, correct times. So thanks for joining me today, Leanne. Hey, Josie. Thanks for having me. Always enjoy having you on the show. Guys, and if you have a question or a comment for us, email us anytime, fit at mpbonline.org. So, Leanne, let's um, start a little bit about Hancock Women's Center in Bay St. Louis. Tell me about where you practice and what kind of stuff you guys do down there. Um, So we basically take care of women from adolescence on. Um, We focus on preventative medicine, and we also uh, have um, provide obstetrical care and uh, gynecological services for our patients. And we have a few providers that do primary care here as well. So we're kind of all over, um, all over the spectrum here. Yeah, and we have a lot of listeners and a lot of callers that routinely call in for us that are down on the coast. So um, we're glad to be able to feature a provider down there as well. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. So October, of course, is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Everything is pink um, right now. Uh, and it's it's great uh, to have so much awareness around this problem. Um, but it's something that we need to think about every month of the year, not just October. But we are going to focus in on some of those things today. And I want to kind of start with just you know, why is it such uh, an important topic? What's, what's kind of the scope of the problem of breast cancer? Well, it's the most common cancer in women except for skin. Uh, Last year, we had over 300,000 cases diagnosed in women um, and actually 2,700 cases diagnosed in men. Uh, So it's a a pretty common cancer, and um, and there's there's so many 
screening modalities out there and so many things that we can do to modify our risk. So I feel like the awareness is important, um, it, you know, just like you said, not just in October all year long, but, um, but just so we can be more aware and be more educated and be more proactive in our health. I'm glad you mentioned the the number of men as well, as we usually have some callers who will call in and talk with us about that. And we are going to cover that a little later in the show. We're going to talk specifically about risk factors that increase um, uh, your chance of developing uh, cancer, male breast cancer. Um, one thing, I, what, which is something I think we might not realize, is kind of the age of diagnosis of breast cancer. We tend to think about it in being older women that develop breast cancer. And when you look at the statistics, it's true. The median age at diagnosis is 62. But whenever you see a number like that, I want you to think about what median means. And so that means there's a whole nother 50% of folks that are younger than 62 at the time of diagnosis. So it's not just something that we need to start paying attention to um, after menopause or as we're aging, but breast health and breast screening is an important part of just overall wellness for everyone. Yes, and we, I mean, we are seeing cases, I feel, younger and younger um, you know, each year. So I really focus on talking to even my adolescent patients about, you know, breast awareness. Um, and so I feel like that's, you're never too early to, to talk to um, our young ladies about being aware of our breasts and being aware of breast changes, um, you know, knowing what is a, what is normal for your breast and what is a new finding that we should be worried about. Um, so we, we make sure that we address that with not only, you know, our adolescent patients, but through the, through the spectrum. Um, so, you know, self-breast exams and just being aware of any changes to your breast is, is super important, um, as well as, you know, getting a clinical breast exam, you know, once we're, you know, over 21 from um, a provider that routinely does breast exams is just, you know, super basic things that we can do. Um, be aware. Yeah. And let's talk for a second about those two types of breast exams. So you mentioned self-breast exam, clinical breast exam. Talk a little bit about the difference between those two and why they're both important. So a self-breast exam is one that we do on our own. Um, and so, you know, I try, I try to tell people to be aware and to remember to do them once a month. I'm guilty of not remembering to do them once a month myself, but just to be aware of any changes to your breast. So the things that we look for that would be worrisome would be if you have a new, you know, like a new lump or bump, any nipple discharge, um, especially, you know, like a bloody discharge. Um, and when, you know, breast milk is a normal, is a normal nipple discharge, um, but any type of nipple discharge that is new, that should be reported you know, to your provider. Um, any changes in the skin, like if it starts to look kind of like an orange peel or any dimpling, um, sometimes people will have redness or flaky skin. Um, if our nipple all of a sudden becomes inverted where it pulls in, or if we have pain that's new to our breast, um, or change to the size of our breast or shape of our breast. Those are all things that I have patients who come in, you know, a few times a month and they've found something at home that they want me to check out. And I, I, unfortunately, a couple of times it has been breast cancer. So these women doing their breast exams at home, their self-breast exams, is very important um, because sometimes you can detect things before your annual mammogram or before your, your, your clinical breast exam. 
So a clinical breast exam is where you come to the provider and we do a breast exam on you in clinic. Um, and so typically we do this at your annual exam and we usually start after age 21, um, but some guidelines say even age 25 is okay too. Um, but that's where we, you know, check under, and checking on your arm is important mm-hmm. as well, not just the breast. And, um, and so we make sure to do a pretty thorough breast exam. Yeah, and I, I like. I want to make sure that we kind of uh, hone in on what you just said there. When we think about breast tissue and where it is, it's it's a little kind of not deeper, but a little farther out than we may think about typical breast tissue. So you do need to extend up into your armpit when you're feeling, uh, you know, feeling for things in, in you know, lumps, bumps, those kinds of things, because you do have breast tissue that kind of extends up towards the armpit and you've got lymph nodes that drain that area um, in your armpit as well. So it's important to kind of go, go in all of those areas and your healthcare provider should be doing that during their, during the clinical breast exam as well. Um, What I really appreciate about the importance of self-breast exams is you just getting to know your normal because all of um, our breast tissue is going to vary between person. And so I know when I go get my clinical breast exam, my doctor will always say, now, do you have lumpier breasts, you know, and so that he's, he's asking me what, you know, what my normal is so that he can evaluate if there's anything that, that is different from what I feel normally during my breast exam. You mentioned um, remembering to do it uh, can be a challenge. Um, what about our ladies who are still having a period? Is there an optimal time to try and do a self-breast exam? Um, I recommend doing it after our period. Um, just because sometimes leading up to our periods, we can have fresh changes. Um, some of us report sore, tender breasts, um, you know, around ovulation and, and moving on into the start of our period. So after our period is a really good time to remember to do your breast exam if you're still having um, if you're still having periods. And then even setting an alarm on your phone, I know it sounds silly, but that's another <laughs> good, good way to remember to, um, to, to pay attention to our breasts and make sure that there's no, no new findings. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you're not menstruating anymore, you know, you've had a um, hysterectomy or you've gone through menopause, then just pick a day. You know, pick a pick a day, then be consistent. You know, for me, that's like the first of the month. Um, you know, the um, uh, that just is a trigger in my head for remembering to do it because it's the first of the month. So I just go ahead and get it get it out of the way um, and do that there. So you mentioned kind of a lot of things that we could look for during that exam, and those can be some of the symptoms uh, that might point toward um, a, a cancer in the breast area, but they can also be related to completely other things that are not cancer-related. So, you know, don't uh, become kind of consumed with that, but it is a great op- opportunity to kind of reach out to your healthcare provider to talk about those different kinds of things there and get, you know, get a clinical breast exam, get some guidance and reinsurance there or any, um, any further evaluation if you need it. And breast cancer can be asymptomatic as well. That's why screening with other modalities is so important, right? Yes. The, um, and so, uh, you know, like a, a mammogram is basically an x-ray of our breast. And so this is something, um, depending on our, on our age, um, you know, we, the, the recommendations are different for each person and also depending on your risk category. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to talk about yeah. that um, in a little bit. But, you know, mammogram is a very important, um, important piece of the puzzle here for, for breast cancer screening. 
Wonderful. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC. And joining me today is Leanne Murray. She is a nurse practitioner in Bay St. Louis, and we are talking about breast cancer risk. Um, For the first part of the show, we kind of highlighted some of the breast cancer statistics, as well as the importance of self-breast exams and um, clinical breast exams and some of the the things you can look for during those uh, exams. But I want us to kind of focus in on uh, the screening portion. And when we say screening, of course, self-breast exams and clinical breast exams can be a form of screening, which screening just means um, trying to pick up something um, before it becomes a problem, right? Looking for the presence of disease so that we can intervene. Um, And there are different modalities for that when we're talking about breast cancer. But Leanne, why is it so important that we do screening Anyway, why not just wait until symptoms develop? Well, early detection is key. So the earlier that we, you know, find a breast cancer, the better the the survival rate is. So um, sometimes, like we were talking about earlier, you may not have any symptoms of breast cancer. And I have, you know, seen that multiple times where there's, I don't feel anything on exam. The patient's not complaining or anything. We get her routine mammogram. There's an area of concern. Um, the next step typically after a screening mammogram is a diagnostic mammogram and ultrasound. And then that gives us um, a score that it shows, you know, how suspicious it is from benign to po- probably malignant. And then a biopsy is required at that point. Um, but in a lot of these patients, there's no symptoms. Um, so that's why the mammogram is, is key, um, you know, for early detection. And the like what I had said previously about the earlier we find these cancers, the better the five-year survival rate. So, um, you know, if, if we find a breast cancer and it's isolated just to the breast, the survival rate is close to 99%, um, So, which is, which is pretty, pretty fabulous, you know, if you, mm-hmm. if you look at those numbers. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, when, you know, it has metastasized, our survival rates go down. So, um, so early detection is, is super important. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the majority of breast cancers are found in that early stage. Um, and that's because we do a real good job of screening folks and making sure that we're getting them done. Um, but there's always room for improvement on, you know, who we're reaching with with um, breast cancer screening and making sure that we're getting the appropriate screening based off of our risk. And so that's what I want to talk a little bit about is risk assessment. And, you know, lifetime risk for breast cancer for average risk people is about 13% um, or one in eight. Um, But there are groups of folks who can be considered a higher risk for breast cancer. And there are several kind of calculators out there um, that you can find online. The one that I'm most familiar with is just from the NIH website, uh, which uses something called the Gale model. And it gives you kind of a five-year risk and a lifetime risk of that. And I actually did it this morning um, just to see how long it would take me. It took me less than five minutes to, to answer the, those questions on there. And it asks things like how old you are, um, what's your, you know, your race or ethnicity, history of any kind of previous breast biopsies, how old you were when you started your period, how old you were when you gave birth to your first child, if you've had a child, and then any kind of first degree relative with breast cancer. And, you know, First degree relatives are going to be um, kind of your parent, um, your sibling, or your child there, um, and we'll give you get that five year risk and that 
um, lifetime risk and then uh, any instructions that you might need based on that. You know, it's time to call your doctor, those types of things. Um, But your clinic uses a slightly different one. Tell me about the risk calculator that you guys use. We use the tire Cusick scoring system, um, and it is, it's, pretty, it's pretty similar to the Gale. Um, and so, like you said, the average lifetime risk is 13%. Um, and so we consider patients high risk using any model, Gale or, or the TC score, once their, their percentage is over 20%. Um, so once we're over 20%, you're in a high-risk category, and the surveillance is different for patients with um, a higher higher uh, TC score, Gale score. Um, so the, and I, I also did my TC score this morning and it took less than five minutes. Um, and you know, and it's just a good number to know. And so I feel like, you know, with most, uh, most things in life, you know, knowing your numbers are important. So, um, you know, getting on and taking one of these, uh, you know, uh, breast cancer scoring uh, questionnaires is a good idea. So that way you know, you know, where your risk is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's something I'm really passionate about is that a lot of patients aren't aware that they're high risk. Mm-hmm. And so they're not having the proper, um, you know, proper surveillance for high risk patients. Um, and that does look different than our, you know, our routine surveillance for our patients of average risk. And, you know, some of those scoring tools um, expand out the family history a little bit. Um, you know, the Gale model just kind of includes that first degree relative. Some of them will branch out and, and say, you know, uh, grandmothers, aunts, uncles, any of those folks with um, breast cancer, uterine cancer, and ovarian cancer. And some of them also even incorporate lifestyle factors into it, which, you know, I love that um, so that you yeah. can see if there are any lifestyle factors that are modifiable that can um, improve your risk or help lower that risk score there. Um, so the uh, one that I mentioned uh, that's on the NIH website, um, actually the place that you go, it's pretty easy. It's BC, like breast cancer risktool.cancer.gov um, and takes just a few minutes there to fill out that um, that risk score and you, it'll email it to you or you can print it off and you can take it to your next uh, healthcare provider appointment for review and discussion of anything that could be modified there or if it's time for you to start um, a screening modality. Um, so let's talk about other things that would make you high risk for the development of breast cancer. Are there other things out there that we should kind of be thinking about that would increase our risk? So um, a patient, certain things that can make us high risk for breast cancer um, would be a, a history of personal breast cancer. So you've had breast cancer before and you still have, you know, breast tissue, you are at risk for um, having breast cancer again. Um, if you've had radiation uh, to that, to your chest um, from a previous cancer, um, also having a known um, cancer gene mutation. So um, I'm really passionate about inherited cancer gene mutations. We've been offering testing for these um, mutations for a few years at our clinic, and the amount of lives that have been changed um, and, and possibly saved have been been amazing. Um, so it's not just a family of breast cancer. It's like you were saying. It's like if you have a family history of breast, uterine, ovarian, colon, gastric, pancreatic, metastatic prostate cancer, there's a simple blood test that you can do uh, to determine if you have an inherited gene mutation um, that increases your chances of having cancer in your lifetime. And then if you have a family history of a known gene mutation, you definitely need to 
you know, have this test and, um, and other family members need to be tested as well. Um, and so, you know, the most common ones we hear about are BRCA1 and 2, um, but there are many other uh, mutations that increase our chances of breast cancer. Um, so, you know, just something like that, you know, knowing that you have this family history of cancer, that's a, a discussion that you should have with your provider to see, are you a candidate uh, for a blood test for an inherited gene mutation? Yeah, and, you know, make sure if you if this is something that you opt to do, which I had um, the uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2 testing done because I have a fairly strong family history of um, breast cancer. Mine was negative, but what was really important with that was the genetic counseling that went along with that. So, you know, I met with a, a counselor to review my results and what that meant in terms of my risk for breast cancer, as well as did I need any alterations in when my screening uh, exam would start or, or if I needed to use a different modality than mammogram, those kinds of things. So, you know, if you're scared about that, which I know a lot of people um, sometimes will delay preventive care because they're afraid of what the findings may show, um, there are resources out there to, to be helped, right? So if there's somebody out there who's scared to, to kind of talk to their healthcare provider about that, what, how do we help them? So I, I try to talk to my patients about this is your opportunity to take control of your future, to take control of your life, you know, to be in charge of what happens next. And so, um, you know, knowledge is power. And so having more knowledge and knowing that, you, you know, in addition to increased surveillance, there may be surgeries, there may be medicines um, to help you know, prolong your, your life or your quality of life. Um, and so I, we try to, I try to look at it as, as an empowerment and not, you know, something to be scared of. Um, and then I, for sure, if you do have a gene mutation or if you have a TC score or a Gale score higher than 20%, meeting with a geneticist and meeting with a breast specialist can be so empowering because they can list out, you know, all, like you, you said, you know, meeting with a geneticist, having that counseling can empower you and arm you with what you need to do going forward to be on top of prevention and screening. Um, so I think, you know, just looking at it uh, from that, that angle and not, and not being so worried is, is a good way to look at it. Yeah. And I want to kind of loop back to one kind of risk factor that you mentioned, and you mentioned radiation um, treatment. And so I want to make sure people are aware we're talking about um, not just radiation treatment that you may have gotten for breast cancer, but any kind of radiation to the chest area in particular, especially between the ages of like 10 and 30, can increase that risk for breast cancer. So it may have been lymphoma or something like that that you received radiation um, treatment for. We need to make sure that um, your healthcare provider, your you know your your gynecologist, your primary care provider, um, are aware of that history there because that does kind of bump up your risk. So what about men? You mentioned at the beginning of the show what 2,700 this past year have been diagnosed with breast cancer. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about male breast cancer. Um, and what? who's at risk for that? Um, so, yeah, 2,700 men diagnosed last year, and uh, one, of every, one out of every 100 breast cancers in the United States is a man. Um, so, you know, age, 
um, or having a family history of a genetic mutation like BRCA1 or 2. And I actually do have some male patients who their um, uh, daughters or, or sisters, you know, were diagnosed with a BRCA mutation and they came here to get their testing and then we found out they had the mutation. So I actually set them up for genetic counseling. They get their mammograms once a year. Um, you know, they do breast exams. They get the clinical breast exams. So, you know, having a genetic mutation increases um, a risk for a man. Um, having a family history of certain types of cancer, like we talked about. Um, once again, the radiation to the chest. Um, hormone therapy. Um, having a condition um, like Klinefelter syndrome. Um, being overweight. Uh, any kind of some testicular injuries can increase our chances um, for male breast cancer and liver disease. So these are all the all of the you know the conditions that can increase our chances of having breast cancer as a man. Yeah, and a lot of those or some of those are related kind of to the increased estrogen that may be present in those conditions. Um, like the hormone therapy, um, sometimes uh, treatments that have been used for prostate cancer will kind of alter some of those hormone levels and increase your risk there. Um, overweight and obesity, actually that um, that uh, adipose tissue um, releases some estrogen as well. And then there's just some different, um, different hormonal things that are in play when we're talking about um, some of these disorders. So um, ne- guys, if you're listening, don't be afraid to talk about that with your healthcare provider either. You know, we tend to focus on things like testicular self exams and um, prostate exams and prostate blood tests, and those are all important. Um, but uh, think about your breast cancer risk as well, and whether you need that clinical breast exam and then any type of um, testing to go along with that. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio, and I'm Josie Bidwell, joined today by Leanne Murray, and we've been talking about breast cancer risk and screening. If you have a question or a comment for us, you can always email us, fit at mpbonline.org. We went through um, what uh, is considered high risk and some of the things that would place us in that high risk category. And depending on our risk is going to depend on when we start with screenings. Um, and in this way, I'm talking about screenings as things like mammograms, but that's not the only screening modality that's out there. But what about our just average risk folks um, that may be listening, Leanne? When do those screening tests start? Um, in addition to the clinical breast exams that we do with your annual um, at, you know, usually over 21, we also recommend uh, mammography can be offered to patients um, around age 40 for our average risk uh our average risk patients, and every organization has a different opinion on how often and what age to do mammography. We tend to be more aggressive at our clinic, um, which I like. Uh, so we recommend mammography once a year, starting at age 40 for our average average risk patients. Some um, some organizations will say, you know, you could do 40 to 45, um, but and and sometimes they say every two years instead of every one year. Um, I just tend to be on the more aggressive side just because I'm such a um, fan of early detection. So, um, but uh, on average around age 40, once a year. Yeah. Now, is there a point that we should stop getting mammograms? 
And once again, you'll have a, a, some different opinions on that. Um, there, there used to be ages, but I, I, I tend to tell my patients as long as they are in good health and they're expected to live longer than 10 years, um, then we, we usually continue mammography until, you know, you know, if they're in poor health and they don't have a life expectancy greater than 10 years, and we could make a decision together about discontinuing uh, mammograms. Yeah, and I like your sentence right there where you said we make a decision together. And so a lot of times I think people get confused because, like you mentioned, different societies um, in terms of you know, medical societies may have slightly differing numbers that they push out in terms of when you start and when you stop screening for different things. Um, so if you're confused, um, have that conversation with your healthcare provider so you can do something called shared decision making, right? Where we kind of present to you the the evidence as it relates to your particular situation because we're all different, right? And make that decision together about when we start or when we stop, Um doing some of these things. Now, you know, if you're younger than 40 and you feel something, right, you're doing your self-breast exam and you notice something that doesn't feel um, feel right or it feels different than the last time you did this, I don't want people to think, well, I'm below 40, so I can't get a test, right? So if somebody feels something and they're younger than 40, they need to come on in, right? Absolutely. And be persistent. Um, I have a friend who was diagnosed in her early 30s and she didn't get a mammogram the first time she went in and complained and she just got an ultrasound and then um, the mass got larger. And so a few months later, she complained a little bit louder. And then I told her, you need to ask for a mammogram. And she um, she had uh, stage two breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you know, make sure that you, you address that with your provider, um, you know, that this is something new that I'm finding. At our hospital where we order most of our imaging studies, um, if you're over 25 and we're ordering an ultrasound, they make you order a mammogram um, if we, if, for somebody who, if we feel a mass. Um, and so I feel like both tests are very important and, uh, you know, certain things are detected with ultrasound uh, that wouldn't be detected with a mammogram and vice versa. So if you are under 40 and you feel something, please make sure to bring it to our attention and we will address it. Yeah. And you mentioned that ultrasound and, and that's a, a tool that we've used in the past, again, for much younger women, that breast tissue tends to be uh, more dense and sometimes the mammogram is harder to do. Um, but I like that your imaging center pairs those if you're over 25. That's a really good um, practice to have on board there. Now, a mammogram. I know before I had my first mammogram, I was scared to death. I sweated through the little paper gown because I had <laughs> I had it all worked up in my head as being uh, terrible. And while it is not super fun, um, it was not all that I had made it up to be in my head. But, uh, you know, I think being prepared about what to expect um, is helpful for folks. So kind of walk me through what happens during a mammogram and what uh, you should expect if you're having one of those done. So, um, first of all, you cannot wear deodorant before your mammogram. I didn't know, but they give you some wipes to wipe it off with. They they do give you wipes to wipe it off with. Um, And so, basically, you have a very, you know, wonderful technician who 
um, gently guides your breast in between to, I mean, it kind of feels like plexiglass, you yeah. know, like that, that thickness. Um, and then she kind of moves your arm and moves your breast and moves your body to position it to where they get the best view of each breast. Um, and the two, the two plates kind of come together and compress your breast. I'd say gently, but it is uncomfortable. I mean, yeah. definitely, you know. Um, and so, um, it, but it's not, it's not terrible. It's not like they're in there, you know, smashing our breasts and we leave bruised or, you know, anything yeah. like that. And a lot of women are so afraid of that. And so they postpone getting their mammogram because they're nervous. Um, so I try to, you know, explain to them, you know, what it feels like and, and, you know, to not be afraid. Also, if you were ever, um, nervous you could also you know look at like a youtube video sometimes i feel like that helps patients to just see you know so they know what to expect um fear of the unknown you know yeah absolutely uh, (laughs) well the machine looks it looks intense when you walk in there and you're you immediately start thinking where are we going to put things and what's going to happen and so you know just getting familiar with that and talk to your tech as well let them know you're you're nervous you know and you're scared they're going to be super kind to you you know the uh, tech i had the last uh, the last mammogram i had a couple months ago she was wonderful you know she did did what she did and she looked at it and she was like that's not a good enough picture for me I can't see this little area that I want to see and so she redid that part which while again not super fun um, I was so appreciative that she was making sure that the images were exactly what they needed to be for the radiologist to take a look at that and make sure that I was getting really good screening done there so um, you know I had worked it up to be more than it was in my head uh, and it, it was was um, I like your word uncomfortable but not um, not painful and over very very quickly um, very, quick. very quick much quicker than than I thought it would be so definitely you know again talk to your healthcare provider about your concerns about uh, about your fear if you've got a fear of doing that um, because that's how we how we break these things down, right? That's how we get things done because our desire is not to hurt you. Our desire is to take the best possible care of you that we can. Um, And getting that screening is an important part of that. Now, what about those that are high risk? So they scored over 20 on that risk score. They had some of those other risk factors that we talked about. What are their screening guidelines? So for these guys, we recommend a clinical breast exam twice per year. And so some of my patients who are high risk or who have gene mutations, they see breast specialists in addition to us. Mm -hmm. So usually they do one of their breast exams and then I'll do the other one at their annual. Um, And so we recommend doing twice annual clinical breast exams. So you come see us every six months and somebody every six months something's being done to your breast basically is how it works out so we do the clinical breast exams in addition to that um, usually um, starting at age 25 if you have a gene mutation or if you're high risk we recommend you could start doing MRI as early as 25 Um, some recommendations say you know 10 years younger than the person that was diagnosed with the cancer in your family Um, but typically the age that we start imaging is 25 and that's with breast MRI and then at age 30 we can add a mammography. And so every six months, you're having some type of imaging done to your breast. So you have an MRI with contrast, and then six months later, you're going to have a mammogram. Um, and so we try to also couple those appointments with your clinical breast exams so you're not, you know, having to come to us at all different times of the year. 
Yeah, and you know, MRI is another one of those things that I feel like people are fearful of, especially if they, you know, they have a fear of enclosed spaces or claustrophobia, those kinds of things. Again, talk to your healthcare provider. We don't want that to be a reason you're not getting these things done, right? We want to make sure that we're doing things um, to make you comfortable. Right, and we can try to, yes, we can try to make you uh, more comfortable for these things if if there is a legitimate fear. We just you know want to make sure that we are doing the screening properly but also we want you to feel like you have a say so in your health and that you're scared of something we can make it better yes yes and we don't want to just dismiss it as being like oh you'll be fine um you know if you've got a fear like that that is uh, like you said legitimate and we want to address it and help you to be as comfortable as possible while um while also making sure that we get these things done for you in a timely fashion all right, we've talked a lot about be, about risk and about being normal risk versus high risk and some of the things that increase your risk. But most of the ones we've talked about are what we call non-modifiable risk factors. What What's that mean? So those are things we can't change. Those are the hands that we were dealt genetically, unfortunately. So, um, But there are a whole bunch of things that we can't change. Yes. Um, which is the good news. Um, so uh, some of, you know, one thing is um, maintaining a healthy weight. Mm-hmm. So like we talked about earlier with men and breast cancer, um, being overweight increases our chances for breast cancer in men and women. And that's because um, our our fat tissues store estrogen. Um, and so the more estrogen we have increases our chances of breast cancer. Um, and then being overweight, we also tend to have higher insulin levels and those can also increase our chances of cancer. So if you're not at a healthy weight, um, working on losing weight can help uh, to reduce our chances of breast cancer and other cancers as well. And, you know, I want to emphasize there that even modest weight loss lowers risk. So, you know, if you're um, overweight by a, a significant amount, you may think, well, I'll never get to kind of this quote unquote normal BMI um, to be to lower my risk. You don't have to get there. Of course, we would love for you to, but even modest loss, even, you know, seven to 10 percent of total body weight loss um, does lower the risk, not only of cardiovascular disease, but of cancer risk as well. And so sometimes when we frame it that way, it makes it a little bit more digestible, so to speak. You know, if you think about being, um, you know, 250 pounds, we're talking talking, you know, 25 pound weight loss, which is much, um, uh, much more realistic to think about than maybe say, you know, 100, 125 pounds that we need to lose. Um, So small goals, small goals doesn't mean that after you lose that 10%, we can't kind of reset and refocus and um, try for more. But I don't want you to be discouraged if you think you have to lose, you know, a large amount of weight to lower your risk. Any, any weight loss is beneficial if you're overweight. What else? What Uh else can we do? So moving, yes. uh, movement in general, that's so important. So, um, and this also, I just, I just read the updated American Cancer Society recommendations for physical activity and it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I try to counsel my patients on 150 minutes of moderate cardiovascular activity a week. So that's 30 minutes, five, five days a week. Um, but their new guidelines are 150 to 300 mm-hmm. minutes of moderate cardiovascular exercise weekly. Um, so, you know, if you're, you, you'd be getting the 150 if you're doing the 30 minutes, five days a week. And basically anything that gets your heart rate up, um, so walking, tennis, swimming, biking, dancing, you know, anything that, you know, 
gets us up, gets us moving, gets the heart rate up. Um, and so th- that helps, um, helps, you know, just us to be healthy in, in general, but also uh, helps to reduce our risk of cancer. And that's outside of just the, the weight loss lowering effect that exercise can have. It's kind of, kind of independent. Just being physically active lowers your risk of uh, more than just breast cancer, uh, many cancers, um, but breast cancer in particular, like we're talking about today. I know you're a fan of running. Um, I see your beautiful posts um, on Facebook <laughs> of, of your running. Um, but you don't have to be a runner to, to meet those guidelines. You mentioned a ton of other exercises that are out there. And what I want people to remember is that anything counts, right? Any movement is better than no movement. So I have some um, patients that I work with. I work with a lot of joint patients, so they may be pretty sedentary the majority of the day. But we talk about things they can do with their upper body while they're sitting. You know, so we tend to think about we have to be up and moving. And of course, I would love for you to be up and moving, but any movement counts. So if we're just doing upper body stuff uh, during commercial breaks, that's okay, too. Um, We just have to start somewhere in terms of adding uh, more movement. Um, I'm doing a fitness challenge right now. And that's making me intentionally think about how I can get a few more steps. You know, I don't have, like, yeah. I didn't have time this morning for a full walk, but um, I was trying, I set a goal for myself that I wanted to get, um, you know, this amount of distance this morning. And so when I got to my office, I was a little bit shy of that distance. So I made a couple of laps around the, uh, uh, the office uh, floor that I'm on, got a couple of looks, but people look at me like that anyway, because I'm usually doing something <laughs> weird. Uh, so, <laughs> um, but I hit my goal and I was like, okay. And, you know, so just thinking about how you can add a couple more steps to your day really does start to add up. And then one of the other uh, kind of lifestyle factors that has a, a good amount of evidence behind it in terms of breast cancer risk is alcohol, right? Right. Minimizing or abstaining because, I mean, it's it's associated with an increased cancer risk and, and lots of cancers, um, um, but specifically, you know, uh, breast cancer. So if you do choose you know, to partake in alcohol, we recommend, you know, um, staying under, you know, one drink per day um, for women. Um, And there are, you know, are benefits to, you know, some heart benefits to certain types of alcohol consumption, you know, but, uh, you know, a glass a day or, you know, or, or, you know, a glass or two a week. But, um, but there's just overwhelming evidence that suggests alcohol and cancer don't go well together. Yeah. And actually any alcohol consumption does bump your risk up um, a little bit. But uh, in particular, it really starts to kind of accrue the risk when you go over that one drink per day for women. So ladies that do, um, you know, two to three servings of alcohol a day, they've got like a 20% higher risk of breast cancer. So, um, you know, if if you're drinking that much, maybe we consider cutting back down to, to one a day. And certainly if you're not a drinker, we're not going to start um, for those kind of cardiovascular benefits you mentioned earlier. Um, yes, no, don't no, do, do, do that. <laughs> um, and, you know, you can get those uh, those benefits from the grape uh, that instead of the, the wine there. Um, so really looking at how you... Um, yeah, how much you're drinking and whether you need to, to step that back in terms of, of kind of overall health there. Um, and then smoking. Smoking is another one that increases our risk for lots of different types of cancers. Um, but, you know, one that uh, I tell patients that smoking cessation is the single greatest thing that you can do for your health. If there's one thing to pick, that one's the one that I want you to focus in on. 
Absolutely. Um, another thing is if you have the opportunity to breastfeed, breastfeeding your children um, for one year or more, and that can be combined, you know, it's, it's spaced out between multiple children, but that can, um, it's a small, you know, risk reduction, but it is, you know, a way to reduce our breast cancer risk. Um, and I'm a lactation counselor. I know so you're very passionate about that. There. <laughs> I was wondering um, when we were going to loop in some breastfeeding, because I know that's something else that you're very, very passionate about. Um, and then diet. So the, I know we're about to get close to the end, but I just want to, you know, and I know that this is something that you're passionate yes. about. Um, but basically, you know, studies show that when we have diets that are low in consumption of fruit and vegetables, this increases our chances of breast cancer. So we need to make sure that and start small, like Josie's talking about for other other things, like just moving, you know, just try to have one plant on your plate, you yeah. know, with each meal, like start small. Um, but trying to stay away from our um, processed foods, our red meats, our, our, our sugary drinks, um, these things are, are linked to cancer risk and specifically breast cancer risk and then just not good for us in general so a high fiber diet with lots of fruits and vegetables and low in processed foods absolutely you know it's the power of plants it it never ceases to amaze me um, how beneficial they are for a variety of um, conditions out there Um, so just like you said maybe just one uh, adding one fruit or vegetable to your meal to try and get you started there all right, we are out of time for the day, for today. Thanks to our guest, Leanne Murray, and our producer, Kevin Farrell. You've been listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, which is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, and funding is provided in part by a grant from UMMC and from support from listeners. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Thank you.